This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. I'm Jeffrey Wasserman, Vice President and Director of RAND Health. It's my pleasure to introduce our speaker for this program. Terry Tenelian is a senior social research analyst at the RAND Corporation. Her areas of interest include military and veterans' health policy, military suicide and sexual assault, the psychological and behavioral effects of combat, terrorism, and disasters. As a former director of the RAND Center for Military Health Policy Research, she spent a decade overseeing RAND's diverse military health portfolio. She co-directed a large donor-funded assessment of the psychological, emotional, and cognitive consequences of deployment to Iraq and Afghanistan, entitled Invisible Wounds of War, Psychological and Cognitive Injuries, Their Consequences, and Services to Assist Recovery. She recently co-authored a RAND report titled Hidden Heroes, America's Military Caregivers, which we will hear more about now. Thank you all for coming tonight to uh, be part of this dialogue. I'm really, really looking forward to it. Um, before I start, though, I just want to get a show of hands. Are there any veterans in the room tonight? Oh, amazing. Thank you. Thank you for coming, and thank you for what you have done for our country. But are there any veteran service providers, individuals who are delivering services? Thank you for what you do on behalf of our veterans. And what about caregivers, individuals who are providing care and assistance for a loved one, whether or not they're in the military, but tending to their needs kind of on a day-to-day basis to ensure that they get the care that they deserve, but also that they can stay at home and live comfortably? Any caregivers? Oh, excellent. Thank you. So I'm really excited to be here tonight and talk about a topic that I care very passionately about passionately about. Um, I've really had an honor and a privilege to work on these topics. I've been at RAND now for 15 years, um, and really that time has been spent really understanding and studying and trying to advise and recommend on improving the lives of military service members, veterans, and their families. It's personal for me. I am the daughter of a veteran, but over the course of my time at RAND and in my research, I've met thousands of service members, veterans, and their families. And it is really because of their inspiration that I continue to do the work that I do and that RAND has enabled us um, to really push forward in these studies, some of which have had more impact than others, but ultimately our goal is to ensure that this information, this evidence, can improve the lives of our veterans and their families through improved policies and better programs. So tonight I want to talk a little bit about um, what we've been up to. Our portfolio is both diverse and deep. We've been looking at various different issues, everything from Gulf War illness to understanding kind of the unemployment and earnings issues for uh, service members post-military service. But I'm going to talk tonight a little bit about a few topics that I think are important for just setting the stage about how we care for American veterans and their caregivers. So I'll kick off the conversation by talking about who are our veterans and what do they look like, why does that matter, what are some of the top issues that are facing the newest generation of veterans, and I'll turn to how we support them. So we'll talk a little bit about how the VA is organized to serve veterans and their families, and then I'll talk about how the non-governmental sector is addressing the needs of veterans and their families as well. 
So first, let's talk about our veteran population. Right now, there are 22 million veterans living in the United States today. They make up just about 9% of the adult population in the United States. Overall, however, the number and proportion of American veterans has declined since the introduction of the all-volunteer force in the 1970s and the downsizing of our military forces. By 2040, we expect that we'll only have about 15 million veterans living in the United States today, so they're becoming a shrinking proportion of the U.S. population. Yet it's really important that we understand the unique needs of this population because they're making sacrifices on the rest of the entire U.S. population. Right now, we know that of the 22 million veterans, the median age is about 64 years old. The overwhelming majority are male. About 60% of veterans are married. We know that right now, the majority are white, although I'll talk in a minute about the changing racial diversity. And that four out of five veterans have had at least some college education, just to give you a sense of who we're talking about. Our living veterans span multiple eras of service from World War II through the current conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. At present, Vietnam-era veterans make up the majority at 7.3 million individuals in the United States. This is followed by veterans of the Gulf War era. This includes the 1.8 million individuals who become eligible for VA services as a result of their service in Iraq and Afghanistan. These veterans live across the United States. They're everywhere in every single county in the U.S., although we see some concentrations in a few key market areas. Now, again, remember, we're talking about a predominantly older population, so we've seen a migration of our veterans to what individuals have called the traditional kind of retirement uh, placements in the southwest. We see a high concentration in the northwest as well as in Florida. So this is the distribution today. But it's not clear that it will be the distribution of tomorrow because the profile of our veteran population is changing. We will be seeing increasing racial diversity as our military forces are becoming more diverse. We also expect to see a sharp increase in the proportion of female veterans over time as about 12% of the deployed population have been female. We expect that this population will bring new challenges and new issues that we'll have to understand and address, particularly if we think about women, women of childbearing age who historically have never been served by the VA. So what are some of the top issues that face this population? As individuals transition from military service, even though they volunteered, it is navigating new waters. They are trying to reintegrate into their communities, back into their families, reconnect with their loved ones, but maybe find new employment, particularly for those that have been in the active duty. We know that unemployment is high among recently returned veterans, particularly for those that are between the ages of 18 and 24, as they try to figure out how to transition their military skills into employment opportunities in the civilian sector. A recent survey found that about 10% of post-911 veterans were still unemployed and looking for work. We also know that many are, are taking advantage of post-911 GI benefits to return to college campuses to help them with ed additional educational opportunities and career growth. About 65% of post-911 veterans have taken advantage of these opportunities, although many may be saving these benefits to transfer to their children as well. But one of the biggest issues that I want to focus on in a couple of slides um, from now is really how these veterans are tending to their health-related issues and needs. 
Mental health has become a particularly salient, salient issue for post-9-11 veterans. PTSD has been labeled one of the signature injuries of these conflicts. With increased recognition and detection technologies, we are more and more aware of the consequences of having been exposed to, exposed to combat trauma. And we know that mental health issues is the number two concern among post-9-11 veterans who seek care in the VA. Uh, there have been multiple reports in the media about these issues. We know that there is concerns about the rising rate of suicide among our veterans, as well as a number of task forces and commissions that have been convened to really look at and study these issues. So therefore, addressing the veterans' mental health needs has become a top priority in our nation. Studies, including those here, as Jeffrey referenced, that we've conducted, as well as others, have confirmed that at any given point in time, about 20% of our post-9-11 veterans meet criteria for PTSD or depression. The challenge is, is that we know that of those that have this need, only about half of them will seek care. And of those that seek care, we know that only about half will get what we determine to be high-quality care, or minimally, even minimally adequate care is rare. And so the challenge is, is that we have high need, but a gap in who's getting services. We know there are many barriers to getting services among this population, but a majority of the focus has been about the limited capacity and the constraints on the federal sector. So these concerns have brought new investments. We've seen billions of dollars poured into the Department of Defense as well as the Department of Veterans Affairs. We've hired thousands of additional mental health providers in the VA. We've added 3,000 providers to the TRICARE network. $9 billion worth of contracts have been secured through the Department of Veterans <coughs> Affairs to open up specialty care networks for veterans and their families. And so we've seen huge investments to really expand the capacity of the federal sector. But we also know that we've seen significant expansion in the non-governmental sector of programs and services and organizations who have come forward to try to implement programs and services to really expand the capacity. So this issue is such a concern for the administration that we've seen the issuance of executive orders. In August of 2012, President Obama issued an executive order calling for greater coordination and continuity of care for our veterans with mental health issues. This prompted major new efforts at the federal level to not only expand the capacity, but to really invest in more research to advance the treatments for post-traumatic stress disorder. This was really kind of validated in August of 2014 when they issued 19 new executive actions saying, okay, good, but not good enough. We need to continue to work to really ensure the continuity of care for individuals as they transition from the DOD to the VA, but also to really expand access. We know that new legislation has been passed in the past couple of uh, months to really also increase access opportunities for our veterans. And it's not just the government. We've seen 30 philanthropic organizations pledge $170 million to continue to their support for military service members, veterans, and their families over the next five years. So mental health will continue to be a priority issue for quite some time, and we've got a lot of work to do. But there are other issues of concern as well. A second related um, major issue for this population is tending to the needs of the wounded, ill, and injured population. We know that advances in battlefield medicine have meant that many, many more are surviving their injuries and living with disabilities. We've seen a significant increase in the number and proportion of veterans who have service-connected disabilities. We know these issues were thrust under the microscope in 2007 when a series of investigative reports kind of highlighted the deficiencies at the Walter Reed Medical Center. 
This prompted new attention and new efforts to really ensure that the pipeline and care transition processes were improved. They had been noted to be woefully inadequate and overtaxed. So with this new energy and effort came an increased attention on the severe disability that our veterans were facing and how to best support them. That included turning to their caregivers. 2010 legislation brought about new programs and investments in helping to support caregivers of the severely wounded, ill, and injured population, but did so at a time when there was, there was really no information about who these individuals were or what they really needed. So to fill that void, as Jeffrey mentioned, this past year we uh, released a major study on the magnitude of caregiving in the United States. Funded by the Elizabeth Dole Foundation, we were able to, the f for the first time, to not only quantify but also characterize the issues associated with caregiving for military service members and veterans. Through a national survey of more than 40,000 households, we identified 5.5 million individuals who are providing care and assistance to either a current or former member of the military, 20% of whom were providing this critical care and assistance for a post-911 service member or veteran. These are individuals who are providing unpaid care and assistance for their loved one. And we needed to understand who are they, what are the tasks and roles that they're performing, and what are the burdens that they face so that we can ensure that they are served so that they can serve their veteran. Our study examined their characteristics, their needs, as well as the consequences that they suffered in order to understand how to better support them now and in the long term. So as we looked to the um, characteristics of this population, we found some notable differences between those caregivers of pre-9-11 veterans and of post-9-11 veterans. And these differences are important for considering how to best support them. So they differ not only in terms of their own characteristics. We find that post-9-11 uh, caregivers are more likely to be younger. We find that about 40% are actually under the age of 30. They are more likely to be the spouse or the parent of the loved one that they are caring for as compared to pre-9-11 veterans who are most likely to be the child caring for an aging uh, veteran parent. We also found that 50% um, of them report that they don't have anybody else that they can rely on to provide the support and care, so they're really quite alone in performing these tasks. But who they care for is also quite different. 64% of the post-9-11 care recipients were suffering from a behavioral health condition as compared to only about 36% of the pre-9-11 care recipients, and many of them had a service-connected disability rating through the VA. So this has important implications for the types of programs and services to support them. All of the caregivers that we studied indicated they were providing a significant amount of time in caregiving, either feeding, bathing, dressing, providing transportation, arranging for scheduling and appointments, um, and bringing, um, you know, helping with paperwork. On average, about 30% of caregivers reported, reported spending more than uh, 20 hours per week providing caregiving responsibilities. And we know that this caregiving, while it's very, very important for facilitating the recovery and reintegration and ultimately the quality of life for the veteran, it comes with a toll. We assessed the caregivers across a number of domains, and the, one of the most striking findings was, was with respect to depression. We found that about 40% of post-911 veterans met symptom criteria for depression currently, but only about 30% of them were getting help for that problem. So again, we have another gap in ensuring that our caregivers are getting the help that they need.
We also found that caregivers reported having to make adjustments at work. About 70% of our post-9-11 veterans were in their labor force, but about half of them had to make some work-related adjustments. This could have meant leaving the workforce altogether, just not being able to leave the home and enter the labor force, but it also may have meant reducing their hours or perhaps not being as productive at work because of the, the challenges and issues that they were facing at home. When we looked at absenteeism, we know that that comes at a cost to society. So on average, post-9-11 military caregivers reported missing 4.4 days per month of work. When you multiply this by just the average um, kind of employee wage in the country, that's $6 billion in lost productivity in just one year, a cost that's being borne by our employers and society in general. And so this is just one year. Remember, these are very young individuals, and we expect that they're going to be performing these roles for decades to come. So the costs associated with the burdens of caregiving are only expected to accumulate. So how are we supporting these individuals? How are we actually organized at the federal and non-governmental levels to really make sure that our veterans and their caregivers are well supported through high-quality programs? Well, let's first talk about the VA. The VA is a cabinet-level federal agency made up of three major administrations. They were formed to really ensure that they care for those who have borne the battle of war. The National Cemetery Administration runs 131 cemeteries for veterans and provides burial benefits for those who are deceased. The Veterans Benefit Administration operates 56 regional offices and approximately 300 vet centers that help veterans fill out their claim forms, get access to their benefits, which can include education, disability compensation, employment assistance, or vocational rehabilitation. The Veterans Health Administration operates 150 hospitals across the country and more than 800 community-based um, outpatient clinics, making it the largest integrated healthcare system in the United States. Its mission historically has been to provide a healthcare safety net for our disabled veterans, but in 1996, significant reform changed it from an episodic inpatient provider to a comprehensive healthcare system for our veterans. Close to 9 million veterans have enrolled in this system where they're eligible for both primary and specialty care as well as pharmaceutical and ancillary services. Last year alone, 6 million veterans received some portion of their health care at the VA. Veterans enroll in the VA health care system at no cost. There are no enrollment fees and no deductibles. Their, their co-payments and their access level is based upon their determination on priority levels, which is dictated by their level of service-connected disability and their financial status. So the more disabled and the less income, the higher the, disability, the higher priority level and the greater access to this system. As you all know, the VA has come under increased scrutiny over the past several months about concerns about its capacity and wait times, as well as in the number of providers. And for the most part, this is because the VA operates as a staff model delivery system, with the overwhelming majority of services having to be delivered in facilities owned and maintained by the VA and staffed by VA employees. They are divided into 22 kind of uh, service delivery networks called VISINs that each include medical centers as well as outpatient clinics and residential facilities such as nursing homes. This past summer, however, new legislation was introduced to increase the veterans' choice and capability to access care outside of the VA health system 
by opening up and easing the opportunity for them to get care downtown, if you will, depending upon wait times and how far they are from the VA facility. This is particularly a concern for post-9-11 veterans who are now using the VA at unprecedented rates. Of the approximately 1.8 million Iraq and Afghanistan veterans that have become eligible for VA benefits, about half of them have sought some type of care from the VA since their, um, then since their discharge. Um, post-9-11 veterans are given free VA health care for up to five years post-discharge without enrolling, but at that time they're encouraged to enroll so they can, can continue to access the VA health care system. And again, they are accessing it at unprecedented, unprecedented rates as compared to their predecessors. Of the post-9-11 veterans who have visited the VA, we've seen a myriad of issues that they're facing, with musculoskeletal pr problems being the most common. Again, remember, they're wearing heavy rucksacks. Their knees are taking a, an incredible amount of wear and tear. They're coming in for issues with low back, pains and, uh, low back pain and joint problems. And so these musculoskeletal problems are really quite predominant in the post-9-11 veteran population. This is followed by mental health concerns. Again, there's been an aggressive push to ensure that veterans that may be experiencing post-deployment-related mental health problems are identified and referred. And there's an aggressive outreach approach within the VA that once you come into the primary care setting, you are screened for mental health problems as well as potential exposure to a traumatic brain injury. But we also know that general health problems are of concern, and we're seeing a lot of idiopathic symptoms um, and kind of unexplained problems among the post-9-11 veterans that have yet to be determined. This, if you think about it in comparison to kind of Agent Orange or Gulf War illness and syndrome, these are the types of symptoms that they're experiencing, but causes have yet to be identified. So now that we've talked a little bit about the federal system, I do want to turn and talk about the non-governmental sector. I think it's fair to say that since 9-11, there's been an outpouring of support for our troops and their families. And certainly, uh, post-9-11 veterans have come home to a much different environment than Vietnam-era veterans returned to. Um, we've seen that about 40,000 organizations have identified themselves as uh, providing some type of support and, uh, for veterans and their families. This is an incredible number of organizations, but because they operate in the non-governmental sector, it's really hard to wrap our arms around them and understand what types of services they're offering, what the depth and breadth of their capacity is, and really what is the quality of the types of services that they're delivering to our veterans. Yet due to the consistent pressures on the government and the federal capacity constraints, there have been a number of efforts really emphasizing the call for more public-private partnerships to really take advantage of the sea of goodwill that we're seeing in communities. And these operate at multiple levels. It can be a very small program in a specific community to take veterans fly fishing, or it can be a very sophisticated national organization that is really delivering a whole suite of services for our veterans. And so this call from the administration to really improve and expand public-private partnerships has been a major emphasis in the past two years. And while this seems like it's an enormous, great opportunity to expand access and capacity, there are a couple of concerns if you think about this limited information. The first really has to do with the program's maturity. Of these 40,000 organizations, as we've seen in the caregiver space and the mental health support space, more than half of them are less than 10 years old. So these programs are not necessarily very mature and may lack infrastructure kind of for the long haul. 
At the same time, many are using what would be called novel approaches that have no evidence of effectiveness. So we don't know if they're providing high-quality services or rendering any value. There are certainly good intentions and great will to support our veterans and the families, but in an era of constrained fiscal resources, they are likely vulnerable to uh, waning interest in philanthropic support. The overwhelming majority, 80% of them, depend upon external sources of private funding to pay the bills. And so while they want to do more, they really are dependent upon the money that comes in to kind of contain or continue and sustain their programs. So this calls into question kind of how sustainable is the landscape of veteran support. And we need to kind of think about the future. So in summary, you know, I think it's fair to say that um, understanding the needs of our diverse veteran population are of critical importance if we're going to really make sure that we honor our commitment to uh, meet the needs of those who've borne the battle and really honor their sacrifices on behalf of our nation. In the long term, we really do need to think creatively about how we think about services outside of the federal sector. The VA and the DOD have been under the microscope, um, and with important and good reasons. Um, we've invested in expanding their capacity. We've thought about, um, it, we're looking at new accountability measures and how we can really ensure that they're doing the most with the dollars that they have. But we also need to think about how the non-governmental sector can step forward and honor their commitment to the veterans. This is important because it will help contribute to long-term uh, sustainability, to honor those who have served, but also make a promise to the future generation of service members and their families as well. So as we think towards the future, we need to think about how can integration work? How can this coordination and these partnerships really be developed? We've been doing some research to try and understand these relationships, and while we've seen success in some communities, there's really quite varied experiences with how these relationships can be developed. They're often personal, they're based upon trust, um, and there are many barriers to facilitating this at the federal and institutional kind of level. There are cultural barriers, there are legal barriers, there's privacy concerns, and there are um, important kind of statutory uh, issues that need to be reexamined to ensure that this coordination and integration can move forward and also be sustainable. Our work will hopefully continue to inform these issues. We just released a report last week that looked at one of the community-based effort programs that has been in place to support veterans. And we've got another report coming out on Veterans Day that will talk a little bit about how the private mental health care sector can step forward to really ensure that they're meeting the needs of veterans as well. So with that, I'm going to wrap up, and I look forward to uh, entertaining some questions and continuing our dialogue. So thank you again. Good evening to everyone. Uh, so we really encourage your questions. Uh, and so we ask that people raise their hands. And myself and my colleague will come and bring you the microphone. And it looks like we've got one right here. Have any studies been done on the predisposition of the mental health issues prior to um, entering the service? And yes. if there's a compared to the population? Sure. And then the other, kind of the same thing, the caregivers that you talked about, some are spouses yeah. and some are children. How does that compare? I would think that that would be true of the general population as well, like caregivers for older people are the children and the caregivers mm -hmm. for younger people are the spouses. Sure. 
Great questions. Let's first talk a little bit about what we know about the risk factors associated with experiencing a post-deployment mental health problem. And while we've seen some studies that can kind of draw associations between the experiences and history of individuals before service, we know that folks with a predisposition predisposing condition or family history um, or lowered social support may be at higher risk for experiencing post-deployment mental health problems. There have been really no longitudinal studies that have tried to assess the functioning um, and status of an individual pre-enlistment and followed them longitudinally across kind of their lifespan in military service to look at the risks. Um, and so what we've done in the cross-sectional work is actually tried to isolate the factors in some of our multivariate models. And time and time again, what we find is regardless of the pre-existing problems, it is the number of combat uh, traumas that they experience that predicts whether or not they experience a, a post-deployment mental health problem. And so one way you can look at it is they were healthy enough to enter the force, um, they were determined um, to be fit, to be able to be deployed, and the experiences that they have while they're deployed really contribute to their post-deployment kind of mental health problems. Um, we haven't really examined as a nation kind of whether or not our screening approaches for the military need to be shifted or changed. There was a period of time when we had to um, relax our entrance standards to ensure that we had enough individuals to actually send um, on these deployments. And so there's a need for st continued study and really thinking about what the standards should be. With respect to the caregiving population, we found amazing similarities between the pre-9-11 caregiver population and the civilian caregiver population, where if you think about it, it's an adult child caring for their parent or an aging spouse caring for a similarly aging spouse. But for the post-9-11 veteran population, what stuck out is that 25% of the caregivers were parents. Um, and 25% of the caregivers were their buddies. And so these are single servicemen and women who've experienced a significant injury or disability, and now they're counting on their parents to once again provide care and assistance for them, or they're turning to their battle buddies to kind of help them manage and make their way. So it is different. We see a much different age profile. But as they age, um, we project in our report that those parents are going to age and may need caregiving themselves, and so no longer be able to um, be the caregivers. And some of these spouses, they're in very young and vulnerable marriages, um, and so they may be um, subject to dissolution and divorce, and so caregiving continuity for the post-9-11 uh, veteran population is particularly a concern, because in just 15 years, um, it's not clear that these marriages will be intact or that these parents will be able to render that level of care. So as a society, we need to think not only what we want to afford individuals in terms of community living, but are our models of care really well designed to facilitate community-based living and who are our caregivers going to be? This is an issue for our veterans, but it's also an issue for the nation as we continue to age and um, our care, you know, the potential caregiving population shrinks. All right. Uh, looks like we've got one right here. Thank you. Great research, interesting information, but the title of your speech was Helping American Veterans and Their Caregivers. Yep. The information that I interpret from your speech is research yep. and what has happened and some uh, speculation, but it doesn't really 
give us information as to what current yep. caregivers can do with the help that is not being given by sure. the VA right now. Sure. My mother is has been taking care of my father. We can't get any feedback from the VA. They don't respond to phone calls, to yep. forms, nothing. It's terrible. So my questions are, who hired you to do this research? Sure. Did Rand, you know, I mean. So I can talk a little bit more about that because it's a great question, and I didn't go into depth on this, but I can and I will. So um, as part of our study, we looked at the landscape of support to try to understand what's available in terms of policies, programs, and services to support caregivers, particularly military caregivers, although we looked at caregiving in general. Originally, we identified 500 organizations. As we scratched the surface, though, and tried to understand what they were doing and what they were providing, this list got narrowed down to only 200 and, um, 120 organizations who are providing kind of 217 different types of programs and services. So in our report, we detail very clearly kind of the types of programs and services that are available both within the government sector as well as outside of the government sector. We talk specifically about the gaps in the eligibility criteria. For example, um, state-level benefits are available for caregivers to those who are over the age of 60. Um, and so this may be applicable to pre-9-11 uh, veterans and their caregivers, but not um, post-9-11 veterans and their caregivers who are overwhelmingly much younger. Um, a lot of the benefits are conferred to those who are directly related, first degree. And so another gap is thinking about the eligibility criteria for who is a caregiver. So parents um, sometimes qualify, sometimes don't qualify, depending upon the program, and buddies almost never qualify. And so we identify some of these gaps, but we also go through in quite detail all of those 120 organizations and talk about what they do provide and how to contact them. And so depending upon your state and where you live, there are county-level resources, there are state-level resources, and there are resources in the nonprofit sector. While we identify some gaps, we also talk about the important work that many of them are doing. Um, we see significant um, kind of investments in providing social support services and um, kind of family support and advocacy for caregivers, but a gap in providing respite care. Only nine organizations provide respite care for military caregivers, and that is the substitution of services. And so um, what we need to do to better support caregivers is really think about filling those gaps in programs. So we outline specific recommendations both um, through legislation as well as integrating and coordinating some of these programs in the governmental and non-governmental sector. The GAO just released a report on the VA caregiver um, program, which looks very comprehensive on paper, um, but the GAO found that it is not um, resourced to the level to meet the needs of the number of caregivers. So we have a long way to go. Um, as Jeffrey mentioned, there's been a national coalition that has been formed of organizations to really continue to push forward on the issues for caregivers, particularly for military caregivers, although the spillover is um, going to happen. We see employers stepping forward. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce has instituted a whole new program to kind of create uh, workplaces more friendly to caregivers. And so we've seen some action, but there's still a lot of room for improvement. So I don't know if that directly answers your question, but we did look at kind of like tangibly like what you can do and who you should call will depend upon where you live. And I'm happy to talk to you after and make some recommendations of some of the organizations that you could turn to. 
So the overwhelming majority of RAND's research is sponsored, um, either through a grant or contract. And so this particular report was sponsored by the Elizabeth Dole Foundation. It was a grant. We were able to come up with a specific questions. As a research organization, our contribution is to provide the information and the evidence that can be used to inform and improve policies as well as programs. And so we generated the data. We made very specific recommendations for the types of policies and the ways that programs can be improved. It's then incumbent upon either the policymakers or the program officials to act upon our recommendations, um, but we continue to disseminate and try to have that impact by um, briefings and meetings and kind of uh, raising the issues through our other writings. So our responsibility was to create the evidence base. Um, and the, as the policymakers have told us, without the evidence, they don't know what to do. And so they're persuaded by anecdotes, which is often enough to, to kind of move something forward, um, but they need the data to really inform kind of what they're doing and how best to do it. So uh, while we don't provide direct services to caregivers, uh, we are working with those to help interpret the data and information so that they can make best use of it to improve their programs. So we are working closely with the VA. We've worked closely with employers to kind of think about how they can implement some of the recommendations. So. Terry, we have a question in the middle. Good evening. As a volunteer chaplain in the prison system, what, if any, research has been done the honorably discharged yep. veterans who then get into trouble and are yep. justice involved, we believe probably never should have been in the system yep. in the first place. Yeah. What's being done for them? So that's a great question. And while Rand hasn't done any studies on this topic, we have been working and following a lot of the evolution of the veteran treatment courts. So I don't know if you're familiar with the veteran treatment courts. It's much like um, kind of mental health and drug use treatment courts. So there has been a major emphasis to kind of within the justice system identify individuals who may have had military service or are veteran connected and to kind of take them out of the normal court processing system and provide them and wrap around them with supportive services to make referrals to financial counseling or make referrals to drug counseling or make referrals to mental health care to get them access to the support that they need so that their um, kind of life situation will change and therefore their behavioral choices may change and so we can avoid them being um, incarcerated and penalized. There haven't been many studies of the veteran treatment courts. In fact, I don't think there have been any. There have been studies done by RAND of the mental health courts and have shown kind of quite good positive outcomes. And so we've been working to try to follow this evolution and see if we can study it to document the need to really um, proliferate them and expand them across the United States. I'm not aware of research that has looked at um, veterans who have been incarcerated. Uh, I am aware of increasing concerns about the number of veterans who are discharged dishonorably um, and may uh, be kind of separated from the military without access to services and benefits through the VA and a growing concern about understanding the needs of that population, which has become incredibly difficult to track um, because of the limited data available. We've got a question right in front of you here. I just want to say thank you, firstly, for doing a beautiful job and being so articulate. Thanks. Uh, secondly, I'd like to know where can you place the law enforcement? Because we have a tremendous yep. resource there, and I think a lot of them need a psychological care before they even get into law enforcement. But once they could possibly be out there in the community helping and yep. using their eyes to see how they can bridge 
some of the opportunities there. I don't have specific statistics, but I do know that um, several members of the reserve component as well as several veterans do often join the first responder community. There has been major emphasis on understanding the needs of the first responder community and um, kind of coming up with programs that can help support them in the workplace as well as tend to the issues that they face. This was particularly an issue after 9-11. Um, and so there's a continued emphasis on that. I also know that there's a couple of national organizations that have been trying to work very closely with law enforcement personnel to help increase their understanding of the issues that veterans face so that they, when they may encounter a veteran, they ask the right questions and they perhaps can kind of avoid confrontation. And so there are a couple of national organizations that are working on those types of issues. But again, we haven't studied them systematically, so I can't tell you how well they're working, but I have heard of several that are really aimed at trying to educate, resource, and tool law enforcement to um, more successfully interact with the veteran population who's at risk. Good evening. Thank you for your report. Um, as president of Los Angeles National Cemetery Support Foundation, NS, uh, <clears throat> Representative Department of Defense on ESGR, uh, which involves the in, uh, Employment and Reemployment Act. Uh, in your statistics and your studies, what was your basis for attaining those? It varies depending upon which statistic um, we have uh, accumulated. A lot of times we are relying upon data that exists through the Department of Defense and the Department of Veterans Affairs in terms of their census data, how many individuals have accessed their services, and um, of what are their characteristics. The statistics I showed on the characteristics of the veteran population come from the U.S. Census Bureau and what we have generated as a nation on um, the population. Most of our work that we conduct here at RAND to understand the needs of the veteran population come from data that we collect ourselves, either through surveys or um, that are conducted in person or on the phone or on, on the web. Um, we um, strive to do those in ways that are as representative of pos as possible. So as I mentioned with the caregiving study, we, re we screened 40,000 households in the United States, which is called households to ask a number of questions to identify individuals that met our criteria. We do that for a number of reasons. One, folks don't often self-identify as a caregiver. And so if I, you know, I asked many of you how many you were, how many of you were caregivers, but when you ask individuals that they perform certain tasks um, for particular types of individuals, many more raise their hands. So a lot of times we're collecting the data ourselves and applying appropriate statistical methodologies to kind of come up with our estimates. We also use a lot of in-person interviews and qualitative work with focus groups and stakeholders to inform and kind of look at the issues. I also referenced a couple of surveys that were conducted by other organizations um, whose methodologies have also varied, often done by surveys, sometimes convenience-based surveys, sometimes more representative surveys. We have a question over here on your right. Thank you so much for your for your time. Um, I wanted to ask a question about the tie to homelessness. I don't know if that mm -hmm. is in the scope of the the report, but is are a lot of the the homeless veterans um, are they? Have you found any ties between them not having um, caregivers, uh, or is it a matter of them, you know, just because of other reasons, denying you know the people around them and going ahead and and choosing to be on the streets and instead of, um, you know, lean, or leaning on the people around them as, as caregivers. Right. 
That is a great question, and I'm going to tell you what I know about the homeless veterans population, but it's probably not going to directly answer your question. Um, ending vet homelessness among veterans is a, a major priority for the Department of Veterans Affairs, and they've invested a lot of money in this effort. Um, studies of homelessness have obviously identified a high proportion of veterans among the homeless population in various different communities. Um, but understanding the various different risk factors for housing instability and what ultimately leads to homelessness really requires longitudinal study designs and approaches, and we've not had any longitudinal studies of the post-9-11 um, veteran population that have been conducted and funded in this space. Um, what we know about individuals who experience mental health problems and conditions is that um, as they go through other transitions, they become vulnerable um, to housing uh, concerns. They may couch surf for a while. Um, before they kind of wear out the welcome and ultimately end up on the streets. Um, so in, in most of our data collection, and particularly for the caregiver studies, individuals who are not living in households were not part of the attempt to capture um, caregivers. And so homeless veterans may have somebody that checks in on them every couple of days and makes sure they have food um, or you know something warm. But uh, we weren't able to assess the extent of caregiving for the homeless population. It is an area that we are trying to get into and trying to find funding to study more, particularly as we look at this generation's need um, for long-term sus sustainability. Terry, we have a question on your left. Okay. Thank you for your talk. I, I noticed your statistics on the caregiver absenteeism of four and a half days a month. Most employers I'm aware of would not tolerate that for any length of time. So I'm wondering, do you, did you do any studies on the effects, the employment effects on caregivers and any recommendations to afford them some degree of accommodation or protection? So we do um, look specifically at policies and programs that can be implemented within the work setting to ease the burden on caregivers. And studies have actually shown that by implementing programs like employee assistance programs, nurse helplines, allowing for flexible work arrangements and kind of working at home, have brought uh, reductions in the lost productivity among caregiving for the elderly. And so uh, we recommend um, that workplaces that employ caregivers consider kind of workplaces that are friendly to uh, caregivers and the requirements by implementing employee assistance programs. Um, other than the lost productivity, uh, consequences that employers face. We also know from other studies, not our own, um, that they're likely to experience increased expenditures really uh, for health care among caregivers who bear a burden um, because we know that caregiving takes a toll. So lost productivity is just one of the economic costs that caregiver that employers of caregivers face, but also um, health care expenditures and reimbursement. So there's a business case for employers to actually implement some of these accommodations. Um, and studies have shown when they do, um, it can reduce their costs. Um, hopefully, we'll get a chance to continue to study this and follow it. The Chamber of Commerce has been trying to get some businesses to adopt these recommendations and approaches so that we might be able to follow how that impacts um, not only caregivers, but the employer as well. Terry, we've got a question here in the front. Okay. The VA has had all kinds of problems, and it's not just one administration. This has been going on through Republican and Democratic yes. administrations. So I wonder in the recommendations that came out of your study, 
or any other credible study that you're aware of, has anyone ever recommended seriously considering experimenting with total privatization of part of the system to see whether that might lead to a longer-term solution more broadly? Sure. And so um, today I presented kind of from a couple of different studies. And so while not a specific recommendation in any of those, we have written a couple of papers um, kind of accumulating our knowledge and expertise that have called into question the need to reexamine the models. Um, both the model for how we deliver healthcare services to our military service members, as well as um, our veterans. And so we haven't provided the answers, but we and some of our writings have called to question that perhaps at this time is really uh, appropriate to re-examine if the current, uh, the current organization and the authorizations are what we need to best support veterans in the future. And total private privatization is one of the options that has been put on the table by several groups. And so uh, we kind of have been recommending the need for very critical and rigorous study of the various different options. We've been doing a couple of blog posts and um, various different perspectives on the topic. We had an article and a report. Uh, one of my uh, colleagues just put something in the New England Journal of Medicine that was a perspective on this topic and, and tried to estimate the potential savings that could happen by privatizing some of the services offered through the VA. All right. We've got a question over here on your right. At the beginning of your talk, you spoke a little bit about veterans from different groups, from yeah. the Second World War and... Vietnam and others. And I was just wondering, do you find any difference or any similarities mm -hmm. between people who are part of a volunteer army and people who are part of a draft as far as the percentages of people that are affected? And if mm -hmm. there are differences, why would they, why would they exist? It's a great question, and it's something I'm asked all the time. There have been no studies that have enabled the direct comparison of um, post-911 veterans with any veteran um, that uh, served in an era of service before. There are a number of commonalities that we find in understanding the population, particularly those that were exposed to se long separations from their families, um, as well as the combat traumas, certainly increasing the risk of experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder. But over the past several decades, we've had enormous evolution in our understanding of mental health problems. We have um, better diagnostic criteria. We have guidelines for how to both detect as well as treat. So these types of studies weren't conducted um, when World War II veterans were coming home. What we thought was, you know, battle fatigue and soldier's heart um, was treated as kind of a neuroses, not a condition that could be treated. Vietnam-era veterans, we didn't really understand the phenomenology of PTSD until we studied the Vietnam-era veterans and were able to develop a nomenclature. And so because these types of studies weren't conducted, it makes the comparison very difficult. But we do know and we have seen a resurgence in the interest in understanding the issues facing Vietnam-era veterans. Post-911, for example, Vietnam-era veterans began using the VA more. And we saw increases in their experience of mental health problems. We've also seen increases in the rate of suicide among older veterans. And so while a lot of the attention is on post-911 veterans, because that's where the money has been, um, we have also seen some changes and issues affecting the older era veterans. But it's been difficult to make those comparisons because the same investments and studies weren't conducted. So we're pretty careful about what we can say. Here's a question on your left. While the public sector caregivers 
are very explicit about what type of assistance they need, whether it's respite care, if it's learning how yep. um, to be proper caregivers, you know, learning the skills, learning how to deal with their loved ones psychosocially. Um, you mentioned respite care in your data, but are the um, veteran caregivers, are they more specific about what type of care or what, yep. what it is that they need from us? They are, and they need a lot of things at different times. And so, um, you know, we identify kind of a series of different types of programs and services that they can benefit from, benefit from, but also talk about the importance of thinking about them in a continuum. So their needs are going to change, not only as they become more skilled and tooled at, at providing caregiving assistance, but as the needs of their care recipient changes. And so someone with a chronic condition who is going to be perhaps exacerbating and getting worse over the course of 10 years is quite different than someone who has a recovery trajectory of six months. And so um, what we identified um, is a whole wide range of services that they um, need that are offered. But when we talk to caregivers, we also find that the number one thing that post-911 caregivers say they want is to be connected to other caregivers, to feel like they're not alone. And so we did a, a lot of qualitative work um, spending time with some of these folks, and they feel pretty isolated. And some of them have isolated themselves intentionally because they're caring for an individual who needs to not be around triggers. And so they move. Um, they've had to leave their family and friends because they don't want to be in a community where uh, folks are always saying, well, that's not how he used to be. You know, what's going on now? And so they've isolated themselves and just want to be connected to other people like them. So that's the number one thing we hear from caregivers. Uh, we are starting to get towards the end, and we have time for one, maybe two more questions. We do have a question here. There was, you mentioned the fly fishing. Yep. Um, there's a documentary about that, and it was um, Mike Geary, who takes a group of mm -hmm. disabled veterans every year every for year. a free trip. Yep. Um, my friend did the documentary, and every penny that he gets goes to yep. the vets. Yep. And so the reason I came here is because I saw that you you just have to give when you see it. And, and also, I went to another, um, uh, the Paley Center. Oprah and Lucy mm -hmm. Liu did a documentary about, you know, the syndrome they come back with. It was very moving, and there's people funding that as well. Mm -hmm. So it might not be bad to get resources from them. They're raising money to do this, but you're yes. doing research. They yes. don't have the research, but they have avenues for money. Yes. Might not be bad to connect with them. And we have, and we have. <laughs> I know Mike Geary. I've met him. He and I okay, have been good. on several panels together. And yeah. um, we've actually had the benefit of working with uh, several documentary filmmakers to help them understand the complexities associated with the mental health problems, point them to the types of programs and resources that they may want to study um, and look at. Uh, we've also been working with a lot of the philanthropic organizations who want to invest and want to do something. And while um, you know we can't tell them that these are the organizations that kind of are the, the ones that um, RAND recommends, we can talk to them about the needs and suggest the types of services that have an evidence base of being effective in, in reaching those outcomes. And so um, while not written and not uh, published, we do a lot of work with documentary filmmakers, and we also have been doing a lot of work with these philanthropic organizations. The $170 million pledge, as a, 
you know, as the daughter of a veteran, I want to know that that has been gonna, is going to be well invested and wisely spent to improve the lives of service members and veterans. And our evidence can help shape that. So that's really what we've been working towards. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.